Hey everybody, this is Evan Wickham. Thanks so much for listening to the Park Hill Church podcast. Uh, This is obviously not coming from a live Sunday gathering. This is in my humble garage studio with a mic hanging in front of my face. I'm looking at my laptop screen at the wonderful face of Austin Fisher. How are you, Austin? I'm great, buddy. This is an interview months in the making. Months in the making. How many times did we reschedule? Well, first you canceled on me. No, I canceled on you, mm-hmm. and then you canceled on me because you had to get your your fancy glasses. But um, <laughs> I here did. we are. I had an eye doctor you, you appointment. You glasses. Yeah. I am. I am currently wearing my glasses. They look very great. Yeah. Uh, so Austin is going to be present with our community in September, and he's going to talk about what it looks like to to be with a God that you do not feel, basically. Um, which is a tremendous, a tremendous conversation today. Um, my son, even one of the main conversations I have with my teenage son is like, I'm like, how, how is how is church today, buddy? He'd be like, I, I don't know, I didn't feel it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a big thing. Like we're feelers. This is a feeling generation, uh, generation Y and Z. It's uh, we're hyper connected, and yet it's hard to feel if it's real. And and so so Austin's going to bring, I think, a really needed perspective. Yeah, so this is this is the conversations podcast where we bring in a specialist, and that's who Austin is. He's he's been there, done that, and now he's serving the church and uh, as as faithfully as he can with his family there in Texas. Where are you at? So Central Texas, it's basically halfway in between Waco of Magnolia Fixer Upper fame, hmm. and then Austin. So right in between them, about an hour in between both. Fixer Upper. Do you know the do you, what's that? The, the Gaineses. The Gaineses. Yep. We have some mutual friends. Yeah. Uh, I have not met them personally, no. They're a big deal, man. They're single-handedly like responsible for floating the central Texas economy right now. Totally. People people commute from like Asia. It's a pilgrimage. Yeah. A pilgrimage to the Shiplap you know, shrine. I guess there's a, a girl on our team uh, who was one of her event coordinators. Oh, yeah. That's a big deal. Anyway... So, so I'm told. Yeah. So what, what Austin is here to, to help us think through today is what it looks like to doubt faithfully. Yes. Um, I, I have been a pastor who didn't know if he believed in God anymore. And so there are a few questions that people have that I haven't at some point asked myself. And yeah. some of them you can find answers-ish to, and some of them you'll spend the rest of your life living with. Yeah. This quote from his book, by the way, highly recommend you get it. A link to purchase it will be in the, the show notes on iTunes. It's got a great endorsement by one Evan Wickham. Mm. Here's the quote. And yet here I am, a pastor, because I followed a breadcrumb trail that led me to the feet of a crucified God and a mystery I'll spend the rest of my life making sense of because it continues to make sense of me. Gosh. Unpack that. Yeah, um, the book is really birthed out of a a journey for me, and I don't I don't know how to not write auto kind of biographically. I think we we do theology um, as we try to make sense of our own lives, our own stories, and so theology that's not grounded in a narrative, um, the narrative of God's faithfulness to Israel, but then also how I try to make sense of the narrative of my own life. It's just not theology I can really connect with. And so that's what the book is birthed out of. A few years ago, uh, I went through a process where I did almost become a pastor who didn't believe in God anymore. And, 
you know, it's really one thing. It was a lot of different things that got me to the point where I just, where I'd once experienced a world that was full of God's presence, I began to experience a world that was full of God's absence. And it wasn't that I went looking to leave my faith. And if you've ever gone through a crisis of faith, you'll understand what I mean here when I say it feels more like your faith wants to leave you than it does you want to leave your faith. It doesn't feel like something you have a really active role in. Um, And so, um, didn't know if I'd be able to do this pastor thing anymore. Believing in God is a fairly important part of the job. We need accountants who can count and pastors who believe in God. Um, And so, that kind of sent me on a journey where I, I had to decide if it was still in the cards for me to be, A, a Christian, B, a pastor. And part of what ultimately kept me in it was, and some of this is an allusion to C.S. Lewis's great line about, you know, I don't believe, or I believe in God the way I see the sun, not because I see the sun, but because by it, I see everything else. Yeah. And I've always thought that um, Christianity does make sense in a certain sense, but even more than that, it helps us make sense of what it means to be a human. Like when I look at my own life, why I love the mm. things I love and hate the things I hate and have the struggles and desires and dreams I have. I think Christianity makes the best sense of me. Yeah. Um, and so that's what I'm getting at there. Christianity is not something I make sense of. It's something that makes sense of me. What would be one of the first moments in your journey as a follower of Jesus where you actually began to doubt Jesus? Can you describe, like, can you kind of unpack what that felt like, what the events were related to it? Yeah. The, the, the biggest moment was I was... Um, on a mission trip over in Nepal, we partner with an organization up there that trains pastors and has orphanages. And my little boy was like nine months old, our first kid at the time. And we go there, we visit the orphanages, you know, just beautiful, terrible things have happened to these children. We make it back home, and I think like six days later, that was when um, April 25th, 2015, the enormous earthquake struck in Nepal. Mm, gosh. Um, and I remember having this moment, man. It's weird how something can happen in, for whatever reason, uh, circumstances are such that it lands on you in a way it never has before. And so it was a Saturday morning. Um, my wife brought in my son, who's like nine months old, so he hasn't gone to the dark side yet. You know, he's just fun at that point. Mm-hmm. I was doing my brother-in-law's wedding, perfect spring day in Central Texas, and I get this phone call telling me that Nepal had been struck by an earthquake. And in that moment, man, it was as if this absurd juxtaposition of my little boy's bliss yeah. contrasted with these these orphans on the other side of the world that I'd been with a few days earlier who I knew were buried beneath the rubble and they didn't even have any parents to look for them. And for whatever reason, I, it was like, I think I call it in the book, like this um, flash of transcendent empathy where you just feel the world's relentless pitiless suffering yeah and and it becomes almost impossible for you to believe in a god of infinite goodness and that's the paradox of christianity right is if if christianity did not proclaim a god of infinite goodness then evil would not be a problem it would just be the way things are yeah no matter what your model of providence is no matter Mm -hmm. what your model of sovereignty is Mm -hmm. you still got to face that Mm -hmm. and again there is this relationship between how good and beautiful you think God is and how much of a problem suffering becomes for you, right? So because Christians do believe in a God of infinite goodness, because that's how who Jesus has revealed God to be, 
suffering uh, and evil for a Christian is, you know, the ultimate unexplainable, inexplicable thing. How could an infinite God allow so much suffering? I mean, think about it, man. We, we get this tiny glimpse of the world's suffering. Yeah. But if we were really to feel the weight of all the abuse, all the cancer, all the infant tears and tombstones, uh, if we had to bear the full weight of the world's suffering, do you think any of us could still really believe? Now, we would all like to think we could, but I'm not so sure that we could. T.S. Eliot has this great line about, uh, I think it's something to the effect of only a God or the Son of God could truly bear to be a human. You know? oh, wow. and that's something that has just stuck with me yeah. over and over again. Henry Nouwen says, can, can we carry the burden of reality? Yeah. And so that for me was one specific instance of this bigger thing, which is, the world's relentless suffering, and it is and will always be the best reason to not be a Christian. Yeah, I think that's a true statement. Um, how did you not allow that to be a reason for abandoning everything? Well, it, it, it almost became a reason for abandoning everything for me. It really did. I mean, I had... Because um, I know that everybody's different. Everybody, yeah. everybody kind of crosses that hurdle differently. Yeah. Um, yeah. Depending on, you know, your, your theological model of... Sure. How God interacts with the world. Like, is he transcendent? Yeah. Is he above it all? Is he outside of time? Or is he right there with us? And he just kind of watches us suffer, Lord. <laughs> Depending on where God is located in your yeah. model of the universe, you deal with that question differently. How did you deal with it? Well, theologically, um, you know, I had, my first book was called Young Restless, No Longer Reformed. And so I had long ago transitioned out of a, you know, hyper-Calvinist framework for thinking about these things. But you're still left with the fact that God, however we want to explain it, has allowed the world's relentless, pitiless totally. self. That's not that much easier. To, it is a lot easier to swallow, actually, but it's still a very difficult thing to make sense of. And so I actually came to the place where I realized that um, despite the fact that I, I hated having the problem of evil, mm -hmm. the only thing worse than having the problem of evil was not having the problem of evil. And so what I mean by that is um, wow. given the reality of the world's relentless, pitiless suffering, can you imagine a faith or lack thereof where you could look upon the torture or death or murder of a child and you couldn't call it evil? Yeah. Because your you know, way of being and living your spirituality, whatever it is, doesn't really have a category, an ontological category. Yeah. Evil. Can you think of anything worse? than not having the problem of evil. And so that's what kind of kept me in the game, man, was really thinking through what are my options here? Evil is awful, but given the fact that evil exists, it is a problem I'm grateful for because it means that I believe in some kind of transcendent goodness to which evil is accountable. Yeah, I mean, the first, the first task I had as a new church planter, two weeks after we moved down and planted, started planting the church, I was asked to perform a funeral for a baby mm. born terminal Two weeks, yeah. after, two weeks after birth. Yep. First, first, like happy church planting, right? Yep. Um, and at that point, whatever degree of doubt I have, kind of, kind of has to roll with the punch, mm -hmm. and I have to be present with people in their deepest pain. Yeah. I just, I just looked square in the face, everyone in the room, and just said, "There is evil in the world." that I believe God is dead set against in every sense. Mm -hmm. um, and in those moments, I'm not even comfortable using active passive language like 
decreeing or even allowing. Um, the only active language I use in that moment is that God is fighting and grieving. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and whatever the implications of that in a, in a seminary classroom are, I'm not really interested in at that moment. And, and to me, being present and being the presence of God, because as a pastor, people kind of view you as like an icon of God's presence. <laughs> yeah. In those sadly, moments. sometimes. But yeah. Very sadly, yeah. like imperfect mm-hmm. reflections of God's manifest presence. And so, like, mm-hmm. I'm standing in the gap, so to speak, yeah. and with my own doubts and my problems with this situation. Yeah. I have, I have kind of a governor on my rage in those moments. Yeah. How has that kind of. Um, yeah. how, how is that part of your ministry as a pastor? How has it taken shape in the last few years? Man, I, first off, I don't know that I'm going to be able to improve upon what you just said. That was very well said, and I, I wouldn't add much to it. Um, I had a very similar circumstance where it was actually, it's it's the child I dedicated the book to, Everett Young. It's our two of our best friends, their child. You know, she was 38 weeks pregnant, I mean, ready to get birth, and umbilical cord wrapped around his neck out of nowhere, lost the baby, had to give birth to it. We held him, you know, all of us did. And it was just this brutal instance of like, what do you say in a moment like that? And I agree with you. Um, the permissive language of allowing just doesn't, in my opinion, do justice to what Scripture tries to communicate about God's relationship to evil. Um, if we believe that Jesus is the ultimate revelation mm. of God and God's action in the world, we absolutely have to say that Jesus took an aggressive posture towards fighting against evil. Amen. There's never a single time where Jesus confronts sin, suffering, or sickness, and he doesn't heal it. He doesn't tell people, well, you know, ordained for this or that or allowed for this or that. No, Jesus always heals people's suffering. Yeah. Uh, David Bentley Hart has a great line where he says, um, I'm grateful that when I look into the face of a suffering child, I do not see the face of God, but I see the face of God's enemy. Mm. I think that's just the perfect way to portray uh, a biblical model for God's relationship toward evil. And so, yeah, the two things you said, it's it's grieving. I understand that God grieves this just as you do. As much as you loved your child, believe it or not, God loves your child even more than you did, and God grieves with you. And then second, to know that in ways we cannot comprehend, God is fighting against this, and this is not something that God is using to teach you some kind of lesson, yeah. you know, which is such a, a profoundly narcissistic way <laughs> to think yeah. about. The yeah. death of the child, God did this to teach me some lesson, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so we've talked really about the worst case scenario and what, what instigates doubt out of these painful circumstances. But what about, I mean, I talk to a lot of, you know, millennials and Gen Z folks. My kids are squarely in the Gen Z camp. And they're like, no, nothing, nothing bad happened. You know, I'm not, I just kind of, yeah. I just kind of don't know what I think. Yeah. Oh, dude, that's. Charles Taylor, you know, wrote, you know, his masterpiece, The Secular Age, um, which I think does the best job analyzing um, these deep-seated shifts that have happened in culture to, to create a world where it's really not, you know, some sort of frothing at the mouth, at mouth atheism that, that we see for the most part. It's more of what Taylor calls um, a world of suspended ontic commitments, which is, is a really yeah, fancy way that. to say. Yeah. A fancy way to say that um, the modern world is characterized by this enormous proliferation of options at our disposal when it comes to religion. Mm. Um, So because of that, we feel like we have more options on the table than ever before. Mm -hmm. We can know more about other religions than ever before. Because in the the ancient world, like there were 
they knew there were other religions, but converting to those religions was not a live option for them. It was unthinkable for them. Mm-hmm. For us, we've been conditioned to be you know, modern people who can consume and then dispose of whatever we want. Every religion is on the table for you and me. Right. And so that has just created a different environment where we've got every religion on the table. Uh, we know more about them than we ever could. And with this huge accumulation of knowledge, we've just become overloaded and paralyzed when it comes to making decisions because, you know, like we do this for a living. Yeah. And I think we would probably both be honest enough to say, you know what? No, I haven't, you know, devoted two years of my life to understanding Buddhism. Right. I just haven't. I don't have time to do that. Do you have time to do that? I don't I, have time. I would. I actually was just talking to my wife about taking a, a Buddhist class just yeah. for this reason alone, just to like, just to yes. get in the world of someone other than myself. Absolutely. And we're professional holy people, you know? How, how can we expect like the average person to really put in the time that they would need to really understand another religion and all the ins and outs in order to walk away from it? And so we just feel this huge weight of like, there are all these options. I know I cannot fully research them. And so we get caught in what Taylor has called suspended ontic commitments, which is just where we feel constantly tugged between a number of different positions. And it's not that we're indifferent. It's just that we feel this massive indecision. Like, how could I ever know enough to yeah. really go all in okay. on this Jesus thing? So the doubt, it's like a better this, way to characterize it. Yeah. Yeah. So this, so there's a whole, there's a surfacing sort of doubt that is birthed out of this suspension of commitment. Mm-hmm. I see that relationally, you know. Oh, yeah. People, people that are suspending their options relationally, mm-hmm. vocationally, yep. but, but now you're talking like epistemologically, like they're, yeah. they're suspending their options in settling on what they even choose to believe. Yep. Um, that's profound. Well, and I really do think that is the most common form of doubt. In, in the modern world, like, you know, there, there are different things about evil in the world, those nasty Old Testament uh, passages, evolution, they're in hell. But more than that, man, it is this widespread um, indecision that we just can't get past um, that I think people struggle with the most. And they wonder, what, how, what would it look like to like really commit and go all in on something, given the fact that there are so many options and I could never know for sure. Yeah. yeah. Never know for sure. Another quote related to this in your book. This is the only other one I want to talk about because it's so profound. I think it could take up the rest of this time. Some people, you say, some people are ashamed of their doubts and some are proud of them. I've been both and now I try to be neither. I try to be faithful with my doubts. And uh, so I grew up in a culture where the the first kind was was everywhere, being ashamed of your doubts. It was like, you know, Grew up evangelical pastor's kid, Southern California, in the on the tail end of the Jesus movement. A bunch of hippies that were saved out of the heroin and free love culture yeah. of the '60s, and so I, I inherited this this Christian subculture where, like, how dare you not be so all in? Like, mm-hmm. everyone yeah. was so passionate, like a re- yeah. like a mini revival of sorts. You yeah. know, missiologists are pointing to that time as like a, a legitimate move of God, and now yeah. and now I'm inheriting this energy. Yeah, you know, and I'm supposed to like inhabit this energy. Yeah, and I'm like, I don't know if I'm, I don't know what I think. Yeah, and but I'm not. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that I'm doubting because yeah. because everyone around me has so much energy. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm very very familiar with, you know, being in a space where doubting was seen pretty much flatly as sin. 
Mm-hmm. And, but then there's another type. Some are proud of doubts, and I think that's prob- probably more more abundant today. Um, millions of viewers download podcasts today. They're just a bunch of ex evangelicals doubting for fun without 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 any <laughs> without any plan. You know what I mean? Without like. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's about thirty percent of my Twitter timeline. Given totally. the particular I mean, that's, day, to me, yeah. if you're on social media or you know listen to many conversations between Christians under thirty five on on iTunes podcast, it's just meandering yeah. pathways of yeah. of deconstruction. Yes. And by deconstruction, they don't mean it in the technical like French deconstructionist sense. They just mean um, picking at things. Yep, <laughs> um, absolutely. And so you're like you've been both. I I feel like I've been both. Uh, but now you talk about trying to be a th- like a, a third way, an option C, which is being faithful with the doubts you have. Yeah, um, you set that up very well. Um, when it comes to option A, you know, being ashamed of your doubts. Like I, I grew up and um, my dad was Church of Christ. My mom was Methodist. I guess they met in the middle and raised us Southern Baptist-ish is kind of how it worked. Um, and so it was very much a culture where I was taught that faith was a binary choice between certainty and unbelief, right? So a package deal where either I'm certain about everything or I don't believe anything. And so when that's the case, you know, like, well, if it's certainty or bust, then you you convince yourself that you're certain is what you usually do. And you stuff down all the doubts that you have because you don't think that the church is a place that's hospitable to your doubts. Um, I went through that, realized I did have doubts. And so the next step in that process is usually some kind of deconstruction where you're going, well, I don't know. I need to sort through this stuff for myself. What's hard is that deconstruction is, it's cathartic for a while, but it can get so lazy um, that you never really put things back together and you just live in limbo forever. And in my experience, deconstruction is good for a season. And again, we always are deconstructing in some way or another. But when it becomes like the default mode for your spiritual life, you you just get to a place where, um, frankly, you don't take Christianity seriously anymore. Which, again, that that may be fine. Um, But if you don't take Christianity seriously anymore, then, you know, it's okay to not call yourself a Christian at that point. Yeah. I went through both of those things and actually ended up coming back to what I think is a more biblical model for dealing with our doubts, which is taking all of our doubts and bringing them before God in prayer and community uh, and believing that the church, I, I want my church always to be the first place that people want to run to when they have their doubts, that church should be the most honest place in the world. Mm. Um, and what I'm talking about there is not some kind of, you know, um, postmodern indulgence to doubts. What I'm saying is when you go back to like Israel's story, they have been people who have wrestled with God from the very beginning. Genesis 32, where does Israel even get their name from? Well, from the time Jacob wrestled with God and refused to let God go until God gave him that blessing. From the very beginning, Israel have been the people who wrestled with God. And we see that throughout Israel's text, that they were people who refused to just stuff it down and pretend like they were certain. Um, Israel's scriptures are full with people who believe in God, but also don't believe in God in some ways, and are going to tell God that they don't believe in God when they don't believe in God. Yeah. And that's what I think a healthy spirituality looks like. Um, that's good. If, if praise is the only language you know how to speak to God, then sooner or later you will find yourself speechless. Wow. Because a lot of the spiritual life cannot be summed up in praise. You have to learn how to lament and grieve and tell God you don't believe in God sometimes. And that's yeah. the sort of stuff we see in a book like Job. And so that is what I think, in other words— doubting faithfully looks like yeah yeah i mean 
Gethsemane gets close. If you're going to look at Jesus, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's F.D. Bruner. He said that um, in Gethsemane, if the Father's will was 12 o'clock, mm. Jesus never quite gets to 6 o'clock. <laughs> he, he never quite <laughs> fully that. opposes, but he's definitely hovering around 9 o'clock. Yeah. I think that's very well said. Um, and people really struggle with the, you know, when Jesus hangs on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Take the cup. Is Jesus doubting? You know, and whatever you want to call it, like you've got to do some wiggling if you're not going to concede that there is something like doubt. Something like doubt. Happening with Jesus in those Yeah, things. at very least, if, I mean, doubt might put too fine a point on it. In Gethsemane, at very least, he's entertaining wrong belief. Yeah, he's, he's struggling with his faith. Like, however we want mm-hmm. to say it. So if, if struggling with your faith is sinful, then Jesus was a sinner because Jesus quite clearly struggled with his faith. So you're saying it's okay in the church to struggle with your faith? Yes, indeed. I, I'm saying if you don't struggle with your faith from time to time, it is, it is questionable whether or not you are practicing full, robust, orthodox Christian faith. Because sometimes a crisis of faith is an expression of your faith. It's not you walking away from your faith. It's you dying to false gods and illusions so that something more like the living God can actually be born, you know, in your life. That's so profound, which actually sparks another question. So, faith. Do you think we mess up the definition of faith? Instead, in, uh, in the Bible, faith seems more like this trust you act on. Yeah. Where where we like, hey, how's your, you know, the tenets of the faith or confess your faith and a bunch of doctrines you mentally assent to often. Yeah. Or, or even just blind, like blind faith. Yeah. Um, we call, I mean, do you, how, how much do you think that plays into this? Like not really understanding what faith is supposed to be. Absolutely. I mean, I think faith, in my opinion, is typically thought of as like an ability to convince yourself that something is true, which is a very bizarre psychological gimmick. I mean, totally. think about it. The ability to convince yourself that something is true. Mark Twain called faith, faith is um, believing what you know ain't so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. He's a good Southern gentleman, so I I identify with Brother Twain. Um, Yeah, and faith biblically is something that um, is usually expressed in more relational, and I think that's what you're getting at, relational categories than it is cognitive categories. Now, there is cognitive content to faith, and doctrine is important and all that, and I know y'all spend a lot of time with that at Park Hill, but but faith has to be grounded in relational categories. And so trust is absolutely a better definition for what biblical faith is about and what it's trying to communicate. Trust. And again, faith, Paul talks about this, faith, hope, love. Abide these three, but the greatest of these is love, not faith. And so whatever faith is, it is a means to love, not an end in itself. And so I usually think it's helpful to think of faith as a posture of trust that's put that puts you in a position where you are open to both loving God and loving neighbor. And that's what yeah. faith ultimately is. It's not a means in itself. Yeah. That's powerful. I mean, that that's liberating. That makes the church sound like the place I could invest the rest of my life in. Yeah, because you can stop this crazy neurotic game of trying to convince yourself things are true that you know you cannot possibly ever convince yourself are true. You can't be certain about this stuff. But when yeah. you say, hey, faith, it is a means to turning you into a person who loves God and loves neighbor. Right? It's turning you into a person who knows how to live with open hands, receiving the action of the Spirit of God. That that's something I can sign up for. I can't sign up for convincing myself something is true. That's absurd. You know. So you're saying I can still follow Jesus and not be sure 
if Genesis 1 is talking about a 6,000-year-old earth? Among other things, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Among, Among other many other things. Austin, you're, you're a joy. Um, before we you know, close and have people you know, look you up on the internet and buy your books, what would you say to our community? A lot of, a lot of people in our community have expressed, for the first time ever, I feel... Not, not we're, we're not the only place like this, but there seems to be a spirit where people feel welcome to express their doubts, and I'm, I'm thankful to God for that. What would you say to them? Uh, Jude 22, right? This really short line where where Jude just says, "Hey, be merciful to those who doubt." All right, and so if the church can be a place where we are merciful to those who doubt, even if that person's you, and that's a lot of it, right? When you doubt, and you will, learning to be merciful with yourself when you doubt. And I think the church is, is well on its way to being the sort of honest, the most honest place in the world is what the church should be. And if we can be merciful to those who doubt, then we'll be a step closer in that direction. That's beautiful, Austin. Thanks so much for giving your time and your voice to our community. I know you're pulled every, every which way. You're an in-demand speaker, author. And I just want to thank you for your voice and your friendship. You've been amazing. Absolutely, buddy. I really enjoy getting to know you and I'm excited to come spend some time to bring Texas to Southern California here. Yes, please. Month. But don't don't bring Tex Mex to Southern I, you California. You know, this may be where we have to part ways a little bit, but <laughs> we, we have Mexican food in California. Yeah, I've heard of it. We don't need Tex Mex. I, I may bring a little Tex Mex queso and see if I can change your mind. But it's in like a casserole. It's in everything, baby. Yeah, that's, <laughs> not, that's not right. Put queso on everything. <laughs> so Austin Fisher has tremendous uh, material that he's put out. Feel free to look him up. Austin Fisher, F-I-S-C-H-E-R. Follow him on social media. His his recent book, Faith in the Shadows, is profound. It's beautiful. It's so well-spoken and relevant for this day and the questions we have. Look him up, buy his stuff, and welcome him. Roll out the red carpet when he comes to San Diego. Can't wait to have you, Austin. It's going to be great. Thank you for having me. So thanks for listening to the Park Hill Church Podcast. This is a continuation of our conversation series. And as always, if there's any way, you as a listener, and if, if you go to church with us, uh, if there's anything we can do to make you feel more welcome, uh, feel free to email us, uh, contact us through the website, parkhillsd.church. We'd love to get you connected. God bless. Have an amazing week.